Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined today by Dr. Eric Schickler, who is a professor of political science at UC Berkeley. He also attended New College of Florida with me back in the day. It's always great to see folks from over the years come back and visit with me here on Trending in Ed. Eric, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Really good to be here talking with you. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, but probably first and foremost, we're going to talk about some of what's been going on at New College. Before we get to that, we always like to start with our guest's origin story. How did you get to this point in your professional life? Could you catch us up on how you got to this point in your career? Sure. Well, I actually started New College thinking I was going to become a lawyer. That was my game plan. But, you know, going to that to college, I really kind of fell in love with the idea of teaching and engagement with students, the environment of, you know, close relationships with faculty, serious intellectual exchanges, both with faculty, but also student to student just convinced me that was what I wanted to do with my life. So after graduating from New College, I got a PhD in political science at Yale, which was quite the culture shock going from Sarasota to New Haven, but it was still a positive experience. And then my first job, I started in 1997, was at Berkeley, and I've been there just about my entire career. I spent three years teaching at Harvard in 2003 to 2006, but really had always found Berkeley to be the kind of environment that fit me better. And so I went back to Berkeley in 06 and have been there since. I've enjoyed that experience. Yeah. And focusing on political science and any areas of political science in particular? Sure. Yes. I've written a lot of my research has been on the U.S. Congress. I wrote a book about how congressional institutions change and then another book on the filibuster and its past and future. Uh, I wrote a book in 2016 on racial realignment in the U.S., kind of tracing mm -hmm. the changes in party coalitions from the 1930s to the contemporary period. So my research generally focuses on Congress, political parties, American political history, and polarization. Yeah, and polarization, sadly, is something that is relevant when we think about what's happening at New College, where the culture war has very much become an educational issue in Florida, and then New College has become the center of a political agenda put forth by Governor DeSantis, which includes a reimagining of New College. Part of why I've enjoyed getting folks like yourself back on the show is just to reminisce a little bit about what was a very unique experience that many of us had back at New College over the years. And why I think that's important is that by telling our story, I think it can help counter some of the narratives that are out there and also ideally connect the dots a little bit in terms of a cultural history of a place that I, I truly love and value in terms of my life story. What are your thoughts in terms of the current situation down at New College? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, it, it really has been jarring for me in part for the reasons you noted about, you know, New College has a really special place in my heart. I really believe, you know, that or I know I wouldn't be where I am today. I and made me a better scholar, person, you know, everything. So there's that personal side, but there's also, you know, I've been writing and thinking a lot about how polarization affects our politics at multiple levels in recent years, working on a book project on that. And one of the things that's been striking is how 
what we have now is a kind of nationalized polarization. So the country's been divided before, but in the past, it was also very decentralized. And so if you looked at just say how state parties or organized groups or the press worked in one place, it might be very different from another part of the country. And in particular, I'd say locally rooted, say members of Congress or state legislators would be really focused on their very much local economy, local concerns, and so on. And in a lot of ways, that was one of the things that protected New College because here you have this odd school in the middle of a pretty conservative part of Florida. And yet what was striking about it was the local state legislators who were, you know, conservative Republicans saw the school as good for their local community, you know, good for the local economy, good for the local culture, you know, something that brought credit to their area. And so they ended up being really staunch defenders of this school, even, you know, and I think to a large extent, they were willing to say, well, you know, maybe the politics of some of the students aren't exactly my politics, but it's good for the community. And I think what we see now is that it's, everything gets caught up into this much more national culture war politics. You know, somebody like Governor DeSantis can see New College as an opportunity to score political points on the national stage. Mm -hmm. And if you weaken your own, you know, an institution that's been an important part of a local community, that ends up being kind of collateral damage and not a concern. And the members, the state legislators from that region, you know, now are much more pulled by their loyalty to their party and are, you know, maybe less willing or eager to stand up for it's something that made their community distinctive. And so this is something I'd been worried about. I'd been talking to people about the formation of two very different higher ed systems in red and blue states. We certainly see it in the primary school level, but we're seeing it in higher ed. But then to see it happen at New College, which is so small, so out of the way, you know, seems like such an unlikely place to be dragged into this. You know, it's really sad. To me. Yeah. And then I guess there's some opportunity in that if there are topics or frameworks or perspectives that are helpful to kind of process this, more people will be looking to folks like ourselves to help dissect, understand, navigate, hopefully instill a little bit of hope or try to find some silver linings amidst a pretty dire situation. For folks who aren't familiar, you know, the Previous president of New College, President Pat Oker, who was a guest on Trending in Ed a few months back, was replaced by a new board of trustees, six members of whom were appointed by Governor DeSantis back in January. And by the end of January, Dr. Oker, who was doing a nice job beginning a turnaround at New College, was fired not for cause and replaced by someone who's close to DeSantis. Members of the board of trustees include Christopher Rufo, who is known for his culture warrior ethos. Folks who are affiliated with Hillsdale College in Michigan are also on the board who are trying to create what's been called a Hillsdale of the South, which is pretty antithetical to a lot of what those of us who believe in New College are all about. Maybe to take a moment there, Eric, as someone who had these formative experiences at New College, if you were to describe the New College that you know to someone how would you do that? What words would you use? Yeah, I mean, I think the central feature of the school is, you know, maybe trite, but the motto or the idea that, it, you know, in the final analysis, each student is responsible for their own education. I think that was central to the ethos. It was like, you're in charge of your education. 
we're going to give you resources, opportunities, but we want you to chart a path through this series of contracts and independent studies that fit an intellectual agenda that you're going to develop over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that sense of empowerment is why, you know, so many new college alums end up going on to be academics, mm -hmm. to be independent, you know, creative people in different kinds of fields. Nobody's telling you what to think. Nobody's imposing some ideas or ideology on you, but the idea is to allow you or help you figure out how to think. And I think that kind of flips how education often works in the U.S. And I think, you know, it's not for everybody, but I think for a lot of people, it makes learning much more exciting and engaging. You never felt like you were just taking a class for a grade or to meet some requirement. You were doing it because, you know, you believe that this was, you know, promoting your intellectual agenda, your learning. Yeah. There was a purity to it. You mentioned that the academic motto feels a little trite. It, it actually does to me now, but at the time when you're 18, 19 years old and you're at a small intentional academic community that believes that the student is responsible for his or her educational journey, that's really powerful stuff. And actually attending a higher education institution that is built around a mission and is built around really that freedom of thought. If anything, the critique that I look back on now is the lack of supports and the idea that some elements of that journey are really hard and not everyone is equipped, particularly when you're 18, 19 years old, to be able to captain their ship through the seas of higher ed. Do you have any thoughts on that? It definitely felt like to a certain extent, especially once you think beyond the classroom, it did feel like at the time we were kind of on our own. You know, yeah. when we got there, you know, there was basically no counseling services, for example, for mental health. Yeah. You know, human service was really terrible and not open very often. You know, just there was a sense that the administration felt pretty distant in a lot of ways. So there was this sense that we were kind of running it to some extent and responsible also for our own lives. And I think the trade-off is, you know, at 18, yeah, a lot of people, you know, you just aren't ready for that, mature enough for that in some, at least some aspects. So I think, you know, my sense is over the years, you know, they've built up a counseling staff, for yeah. example, like the services have improved, you know, somewhat. It's still not the same as at a rich, you know, super well-resourced university, but it's gotten better. And I think that's, that is important because what you want to do is create a situation where students have the support they need both academically and otherwise, so that they then, you know, from that platform can thrive and chart their own path. But, you know, I do think there was always that trade-off and that's part of why, you know, it's fit for everybody. It wasn't perfect. A lot of students didn't graduate because maybe it was a little bit too much freedom or not enough structure. On the other hand, though, a lot of students did. And for them, you know, it's, I think allowed them to get further than they would have if they were more rigid. If there were more social promotion, I would probably feel less proud of graduating. And the fact that at the end of the day, several of my friends were still struggling to get across the river and I was climbing out on the other side. It was a sense of accomplishment. And some of that is also generational, I think, too. Like, I, I just think the sensibility of Gen X was more, you're out there on your own, good luck, try to power through. Interestingly, though, some of those services are now becoming part of the culture war itself, where if you look at diversity, equity, inclusion in particular has been front and center in terms of the culture war and a lot of the polarization 
that we're seeing. As someone who's done some research in this space, I'd love to get some of your perspective on how certain types of services are now both needed in higher ed, but then there is a response against how institutionalized they are. I think that's right. It's a tough question because if you think about the specifics of what an office like the DEI office does, I think probably many of those specific services to students are things that probably 80% or 90% of the public would say, oh, I like that specific service. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. I think that's appropriate, including a lot of the stuff that does make the community more welcoming and inclusive, right? But I do think though what happens is, you know, it's easy to find some particular program or some particular bit of language that's used or some element that, you know, maybe sounds radical or sounds different. And I think, you know, often when it comes to that, say there's some particular policy, you know, the DEI statements in hiring, right? That you could have a sound debate, I think, about, okay, well, how should they be used? What's the meaning? How are they interpreted? You know, one could do that. But instead, what happens is that sort of gets pulled out of context and turned into this broader symbol to then attack the whole edifice and discredit everything that's done mm -hmm. rather than trying to figure out, okay, you know, what are the specific policies? How are they actually used in practice? Maybe there are things that could be tweaked or improved, but, you know, the sad thing is, or frustrating thing is that that's not how it's engaged with. Instead, it's trying to paint with this really broad brush, find one example of something that sounds bad and then mm -hmm. use that to discredit something that, you know, has done a lot of good for many students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And score a political win, something that will be retweeted and shared out through social media. A lot of the, the challenges that you're touching on around polarization. Interestingly, also to your point about DEI, at least in the case of New College, there were challenges in dismantling it because it also included accessibility and, you know, other accommodations that are really needed for people with disabilities. And do you want to come down against that? Because when you really are thinking about being inclusive, there's a level of follow through that is required there. I'd love to hear a little more from you on the polarization front where, you know, the think globally, act locally, think nationally, act locally. It sounds like acting locally is being challenged by some of these broader trends. I'd be curious how you would characterize the current state of play. Yeah. So I don't know if I'd say run centrally or nationally, but that the politicians who are competing at, say, the state and local level are now part of national networks of ideologically driven activists and policy demanders. Yeah. And that those folks are thinking less, motivated less, see their careers as tied less to deep ties with the local community and promoting the particular interests of that community, using local politics as a way to score these points nationally to show that you're a good, solid, in this case, conservative culture warrior and to build credibility in you know, DeSantis's case for a national campaign. But for other politicians in Florida who maybe aren't running for national office, but even for them, I think that there's this sense that well, to be a good Republican now requires siding with DeSantis and these hot button issues rather than thinking about one thing Republicans have long been supportive of is economic development in their communities, right? They want to do that. And, you know, 
one could argue that having a vibrant, successful, small college in a community that hasn't had that is a way to help the local economy in Sarasota develop. And I think that's how local Republicans had seen it for a long time. And you get the sense that that's lost salience in the face of, you know, the way to get on Fox News, the way to get plaudits from conservative pundits, the way to raise lots of money is to be out there on these culture issues. You know, I think it's also worth noting there's just a cost, even for an individual, say, state legislator who might, as a Republican, not like what's going on, the cost of taking on your side is much higher in this era where your Twitter feed gets bombarded, you have trouble raising money, you become an outcast within your group. And that just didn't used to be the case when, you know, particularly if what you were doing is standing up for a local institution. Right. It's interesting to hear that because at the same time, I do a trend spotting podcast, talking to folks in higher ed, talking to folks in K-12 and even in industry and really across the board, the idea of building educational systems that connect with the community, connect with industry, connect with some local sense of meaning is a massive trend. And it's something that in some ways I guess, is running counter to the influence of social media and some of the other formats that are out there. I'm just wrestling with this a little bit as we're talking, but do you have any thoughts about that? Because it does feel like there is a movement within education to look to do exactly what New College had been doing and a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. How do you see that reconciling with the movement on the political side that you're describing? It's long been the case in the last five or six decades been the case, you know, that college professors, academics have been perceived as more on the liberal side than the conservative side. Right. But in spite of that, the difference in, say, how Republicans thought about higher ed and Democrats thought about higher ed was pretty modest. You know, if you looked at, say, trust in universities or academia, you know, Democrats were a little more trusting, but both sides, both parties trusted academia. And I think what we've seen in, you know, really accelerating the last 10 years is a trend where now, you know, just many Republicans view academia as this outsider enemy, and that can get in the way of promoting economic development. I I tell the story, you know, when you think about California as an example, you know, it's a very blue state. So now to a large extent, you know, Republicans aren't that relevant to budgeting and stuff. But I remember when I got to Berkeley, my older colleagues would tell me that from a strictly standpoint of Berkeley's finances, they often thought they were better off with a Republican than a Democratic governor. And the reason was Democrats like to spend money on lots of different things, right? And the universities are one of them, but it's competing with a lot of other programs. Republicans basically didn't want to spend money on that many things, but their kids went to Cal and they Mm. saw it as good for the state and its economy. Mm. That was one of the few things they really wanted to fund, Mm. right? Yeah, And I think we're just in a different world now where it's no longer the case that Republicans see universities as contributing to local and state economy and vibrancy. They see it as, you know, dominated by this kind of hostile political force. I think that's a huge problem for higher ed. You know, in a state like California, maybe it doesn't matter as much in the short term because it's run by Democrats, but in red states or purple states, you know, it makes universities really vulnerable. Yeah. And I am seeing more information lately about how that is impacting choices around which states 
kids are looking to go to college uh, in, and then at the same time, just the overall perception of the value of going to college and what career opportunities might be on the horizon for folks, depending on the choices that they make. Where do you see some of this stuff heading? You know, we are a trend spotting show, so hopefully we'll get you to at least explore possible futures, if not making predictions, both on the new college level, but then perhaps a little bit more broadly. Yeah. I mean, on the broad level, I'll be honest that I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm worried. What I worry most about is having two separate public higher ed systems, one in blue states, you know, where tenure is secure. Funding always still remains questionable, but tenure is secure. You know, there's a lot of promotion of diversity, both demographically, but also intellectually. But then at the same time, you have red states in which tenure is under challenge, in which, you know, women, faculty, for example, and students are reluctant to go because of lack of secure reproductive rights, where, you know, marginalized communities don't feel particularly welcome. And so you then end up with just these two very different systems. And I think that you know, if we want to think about this as one country, that's a real problem. And, you know, I think it starts with the K to 12, obviously, where we've already seen a lot of political interference with what books are in libraries and so on increasingly, yeah. but I think it's spreading to higher ed. And, you know, as an academic, I, you know, when I think about my students going out on the job market, you know. You're starting to hear students worry about, well, if I get this job, if my one job is teaching at a public university, in particular in one of these states, say Florida, they are thinking about, well, will I get in trouble for what I say? Yeah. How secure is my job going to be? Am I going to be looking over my shoulder when I to put my syllabus together? And so, you know, I, I just think that's going to have a really bad effect. And I think the important thing, you know, for people who are outsiders to academia, remember is as a professor, you routinely put things on your syllabus that you disagree with. Yeah. That you think is, you just don't think is right in some fundamental way, but you put it on there because you want your students to engage with it and thinking hard about it, thinking about how to challenge it will improve their minds. Now, maybe you don't want to put something on there, even with that purpose in mind, if you worry that somebody's going to point to that and say, I can't believe he made them read this, says this thing that I think is terrible. Yeah. And then maybe you agree that thing happened to be terrible, but you still thought it was important for students to engage with it mm. and think about why it's terrible. And now you're not going to do that because somebody could post that syllabus on the internet, cause a social media sensation and pressure you to be dismissed. And so I just think that's a kind of crazy world to live in, not one that's going to promote the best education for students. And so, I mean, to be honest, I worry about this. I think the main hope would be, if I think about it, that over time, parents who maybe themselves lean conservative, but will understand that this isn't helping their own kids' education, their own kids' life chances, then maybe that puts pressure on politicians. Maybe politicians realize that to get a vibrant innovation-based economy, you need creative people who are learning lots of things and we need to attract them to our states and communities, pull us back from this brink. But to be honest, I'm not feeling especially optimistic at the moment. New College also on the brink. In that context, do you have advice for folks? If this is something that's activating you and you want to make a change, what are the right things to do? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I don't think there are any like simple, easy answers, but I do think, you know, I think organizing in your local communities is really important and trying to organize in ways that build across class and race and other divisions to try to show, persuade folks that these kinds of institutions, you know, are not ideological indoctrination camps. In fact, they are welcoming of diverse perspectives and that diversity of perspectives will help your own kids, your own communities to thrive, that it's actually in everybody's interest really, or just about everybody's interest to have these places where creativity is promoted, the people that come out of new college, you know, are contributing to society in a number of different ways and domains. You know, DeSantis would want you to believe that the typical new college grad becomes a feminist literary criticism professor. And yeah. Some folks do, and that's great. Other yeah. students come out and are scientists working on cancer. You know, others are urban planners or are engineers or are, you know, journalists and all different kinds of careers, paths, and that all of those together is what helps promote a vibrant state economy and culture that, you know, doesn't just help lefties, it helps everyone. I think that case has kind of got lost in these culture wars. Yeah. Yeah. It's great getting perspectives like Eric's on today's episode. Dr. Eric Schickler is a professor of political science at UC Berkeley. It's been great having you on the show, Eric. We're hitting the stretch run here. We're bringing it home. I know you were just making some summary thoughts, but you were thinking about becoming a lawyer before. Now's your time for closing remarks. Anything you want to say as we wrap up today's episode? Yeah, I guess I'd say specifically with respect to new college, I guess I'd say two two things. One is I think it's really important for folks who haven't been there to understand that it, you know, it really is the opposite of this depiction of this liberal lefty bubble. You know, there's great diversity of perspectives there, great openness to argumentation. I actually, you know, I remember very well, like lots of political discussions with lots of folks coming from very different perspectives and stances. And it being, you know, that the interest in intellectual engagement actually led to much more discussion, debate, openness than I think you find in many other, most other places in our society, both other universities, but other, you know, other settings as well. And then the other thing is, you know, I, I guess I just want to say I'm, my thoughts are with the students there and the faculty, because I think they all face really hard choices. You know, the hope for the school is that enough folks find it find themselves able to hang on and stay and try to fight for the values that the school has stood for. But it's also, I understand, really hard for individuals to, you know, they have to make up their own minds based on their own, you know, their own interests. Are they still able to get the education that they need in a setting that they are able to thrive socially and otherwise? And my hope is that remains the case for many of them, but I also understand, you know, why it's not for everyone right now. And so, you know, definitely thinking with it and in solidarity with those folks and hopeful and willing it, you know, eager as an alarm to do what I can to help. Amazing stuff with Eric. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks, Mike. Really enjoyed talking with you.
When I think of New College, the two words that come to mind are scholarly and tolerant, and those are very much not the characterization that's out there. So hopefully we're helping counter that narrative a bit. Thanks everyone for listening. This will be available through the Trending in Ed feed and then also be on the lookout for a dedicated New College feed where we'll be tracking what's going on down there for the foreseeable future. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.